You're listening to Central Time. I'm Shereen Seward in for Rob Ferrett. Coming up, a look at the Google antitrust lawsuit and the company's monopoly on Internet searches. Right now, it's time for Wisconsin Life. Here's producer Maureen McCollum remembering a horror and sci-fi filmmaker who passed away at age 100 this year. Kenosha native and monster movie director Bert I. Gordon brought the world the legendary likes of The Amazing Colossal Man and Attack of the Puppet People. He worked with Orson Welles and dozens of other stars in a sci-fi and horror film career that stretched seven decades. Andy Turner looks back on the life and career of the man they called Mr. Big. Everything's going to be all right. I know it is. The doctors are working night and day to find a cure. They feel that if they can stop your growth, they may be able to bring you back to normal. You don't really believe that. They'll never find a cure for me. Decades before director Burt I. Gordon created the cult classic Amazing Colossal Man, he was spending his youth in Kenosha movie theaters watching the latest horror, gangster, and western flicks. But watching just wasn't enough. In his 2009 autobiography, he wrote about becoming acquainted with theater employees who showed him how to work the projector and splice film. He even befriended the vaudeville stars that one theater booked, learning about their life and secrets. Gordon ended up at the University of Wisconsin, where he made campus newsreels that ran in Madison's downtown theaters. From UW, he moved on to the Army Air Corps, followed by jobs making commercials and documentaries. But with the love of movies and oddities still pounding in his heart and head, he decided he would try his luck in Hollywood. Many of the mysteries of this vast ocean of space would soon be solved. It would be a race between countries to see which one would be the first the first to bring our civilization to another planet in space. Gordon stayed busy in the 1950s and 60s, cranking out creature features of all sorts, like King Dinosaur. Most of his movies featured unnaturally giant beast, hence his nickname, Mr. Big, also his initials. For daughter Patricia Gordon, her father's tenacity, personal touches, and especially his dedication to being a filmmaker are worthy of admiration. Gordon frequently wrote, edited, orchestrated special effects, and more on his movies. Like in 1958's Attack of the Puppet People. But the loss of love has made this mild-mannered man into a maniac. A maniac who wants to make you a plaything. And the fear-awesome fact is, he knows how to do it. The thing about Attack of the Puppet People, and I would cry every time I'd see it. Spoiler alert, at the end when Franz says, don't leave me, I'll be alone. It reminded me of my dad, because he, he hated being alone. The opening credits from Puppet People depict Gordon's real family as marionettes. Marionettes from the movie would remain around the family home for years. In 1972, Burt Gordon connected with another famous filmmaker from Kenosha, Orson Welles. Welles starred in Gordon's necromancy as Mr. Cato, the head of a witch's coven. Enter the occult world of necromancy. You were brought here for one purpose, necromancy. A ceremony dating back to the pre-Christian era is the art of reviving the dead. It requires involvement with evil spirits. A photograph from the set shows them smiling at each other. Patricia says it was a highlight of her father's career. Her father was good at handling famous people, she says, and had no problems with the famously individualistic actor and director. Patricia says her dad was always proud 
of being from Kenosha. Otherwise, I wouldn't have even heard of, of Kenosha, and um, it, uh, it shaped him as a, um, a man, you know. She has been touched by the attention her father's death received and the love from fans. I appreciate every single fan and every single person who, who liked even one minute of his films because that's what he did it for. He did it for the audience and himself, and he loved making it. Andy Turner brought us that story on movie director Bert I. Gordon. Wisconsin Life is a co-production of Wisconsin Public Radio and PBS Wisconsin in partnership with Wisconsin Humanities. Additional support comes from Lowell and Mary Peterson of Appleton. I'm Maureen McCollum. Now, an antitrust lawsuit against Google has gone to trial after three years. The Justice Department and 38 states and territories are alleging that Google has violated antitrust law by excluding potential competitors, thus illegally gaining a monopoly on the search engine industry. Google owns more than 90 percent of the search market and permeates every part of the Internet. Google says the monopoly is due to the superiority of its product. But the Justice Department says it's because Google has illegally excluded its competitors through multi-billion dollar deals with other tech companies, most notably Apple. Google's monopoly on search isn't just a legal issue, though. Many tech industry experts have argued that Google's massive size has deteriorated the quality of its search engine over the years, prompting a, de a decline in the overall user experience. We're talking about Google's monopoly on search and what happens when a company becomes so large that it virtually has no competition. And we want to hear from you at 800-642-1234. Do you feel like the quality of Google search has declined over the years? What has changed for you? And do you think Google has reached its monopoly status unfairly? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email us at ideas at wpr.org. Cory Doctorow is a science fiction author, activist, and journalist who's covered the tech industry for many years. His latest book is The Internet Con, How to Seize the Means of Computation. And his next book, The Lost Cause, will be out November 14th. Cory, welcome to Central Time. Thank you very much. What a pleasure to be on. Give us an overview of the antitrust suit against Google. What exactly is the Justice Department alleging? Well, they're arguing that um, Google engaged in uh, anti-competitive conduct, including uh, buying default status on uh, all the various uh, services where you might go to make a search, whether that's your iPhone or a Samsung phone or, or other devices or, or services, and that uh, they did that not because they had the best service and they wanted to make sure that you uh, didn't get disappointed by trying something that might be better, but because they really wanted to be sure that no one would fund uh, a, a search engine that might be better than theirs. And if they did, that that superior search engine would um, uh, not find any purchase in the market. And then, you know, they're alleging further that once they attain this dominance, once they knew that searchers couldn't go anywhere else and that advertisers really had only one game for search advertising, which is uh, evident, the evidence points to that being the best kind of advertising in terms of uh, getting people to, to click on something and, and buy something or do something, that um, w once they once they had that market, they, they made things worse for advertisers and end users, uh, degrading quality. So we were all left with worse service, uh, that was more expensive, um, and that did us worse. So what is Google's defense? What are they saying? Oh, well, Google just says we're the best, right? Um, they say we're the best, and um, 
you know, the if you find that the web is not as good as it used to be, that's your problem and not ours. Um, you know, and maybe there's a little implication from Google that, uh, you know, if, they, if there's more junky results in Google that have somehow gamed its algorithm to get to those top listings, that it's because everybody searches a Google because they know they're the best. And so if you're a spammer, you're going to spend all your time trying to figure out how to break Google. But when they do, when that happens, Google figures it out and they fix it. Um, and, and I think that um, the problem with this is that there's not really a, a counterfactual. We don't have a, another search engine that Google allowed to take hold that we could compare it to to see whether the problems Google's having producing good, reliable search results are because it's uh, lazy and um, uh, doesn't have the discipline of competition or because it's just, you know, gotten much harder because the bad guys really have it in for good results. I'm curious what you make of Google's argument in court that smart people, smart employees, rather than expensive deals, are really responsible for the company's success. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> it's funny because you can maybe look at how they spend their money to figure out where their priorities are and what they believe about about those employees. So, you know, Google fired 12,000 employees last year after doing a stock buyback that would have paid those wages for 27 years. They were caught in a, a criminal wage fixing conspiracy with the other big tech companies to stop employees from bidding up their wages by switching companies. And, and so they did this illegal no poach agreement. And meanwhile, it, it's pretty clear that they're spending, you know, multiple Twitters every couple of years on on keeping default search position. It, it looks like the actual figure for the um, Google Apple deal every year, which is the deal to make Google the default search engine on iOS and Safari, is about a $19 billion a year deal. It's the, the biggest deal that either company does. The largest expenditure Google makes, the largest source of income uh, from any one source that Apple has. Uh, and so, you know, it, 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 it's, it would be pretty weird if they were spending $19 billion on default position and firing 12,000 employees, but they blamed their success on employees and not being the default. We're talking about the antitrust case against Google with tech industry expert Cory Doctorow, and we want to hear what you think at 800-642-1234. Do you use Google search or do you avoid it? If so, which search engine do you use? And have you found it difficult to completely avoid using Google at all? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email us at ideas at wpr.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up next on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Shereen Seward in for Rob Ferret. We're talking about the antitrust case against Google and how monopoly affects the quality of a product. Our guest is tech industry expert Corey Doctorow, and you can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you think the quality of companies decline when they become as big as Google is? And how do you think a monopoly affects the quality of a company's products? Call 800-642-1234 or email us at ideas at wpr.org. We have Crash with us calling now from Milwaukee. Hi, Crash. Hey, how are you? Great. Thanks for calling. I w I'm happy to. I was thrilled to hear the subject when I got in my van this morning. Um, I personally, I don't know what the ins and outs are of the advertisement deal, but as a Google user, and I'm 46 years old, so I've used Google since the beginning, I find the quality of the search has gone down exponentially used to be able that I could put in kind of a vague phrase and with just a couple of clicks, I could get exactly what I was looking for. Now it seems to take me 
hither, thither, and yon, and doesn't seem to be able to find what I'm looking for at all. And when I do find what I'm looking for, it's usually after a whole page, or at least a half a page, of either ads or sponsored hits. Well, what do you, you know what, I'm curious what you can say about that, Corey, because is that what you're hearing from other people? Is, Is Crash's experience typical? Yeah, I think that's that's a, a widespread perception that not only um, are the organic search results to actual web pages that Google guesses would be a good uh, match for your query, not as good as they used to be, but they're further down on the page and harder to find. And they've been crowded out by what Google calls like its knowledge box, which is where it's extracting some text from a random web page and sticking it up there to try and answer your query. There's a, a bit of viral stuff going around right now where if you type uh, what countries in Africa begin with a K, this this junk text that may or may not have been generated by an AI comes up as uh, in a little box that says uh, no countries in Africa begin with a K. The closest is Kenya, which, although it sounds like it begins with a K, actually begins with a K. So just, you know, errant nonsense. So, you know, on the one hand, the results aren't as good. And in the second hand, on the other hand, they're, they're harder to get to because they've been crowded out by even worse results. Um, uh, ads, including ads to scam websites and so on. It's a bit of a, the food here is terrible and the portions are so small problem. Uh, you know, notoriously this summer, uh, Google's knowledge box for airline phone numbers. So if you typed in the name of an airline and uh, phone number, like American airline phone number, uh, all of those listings got hacked and Google just started serving uh, 800 numbers that went to a boiler room where uh, con artists would take your credit card and clean you out. I actually got rooked by one of these. Uh, I, I had a friend over and um, we were going to order some Thai food and watch a movie. And so I went on my phone and tried to order some Thai food from our local place. And I clicked the top link after typing their name into Google and placed my order. And 10 minutes later, the restaurant called me up and said, you've been scammed. That's someone who copied our website, raised our prices by 15%, bought the ad for our name on Google. And when people click it and order, they take your money, they place the order with us, and then you come and get it and and you think and you just think that we're price gouging you. You don't even realize you've been rooked. Uh, we're gonna cancel your order. You can you can just come and pick it up and pay for it uh in, in the store, which is what I ended up doing. And you know, the amazing thing about this is that Google actually knows which is the real merchant because Google has this verified merchant program mm-hmm. where they if you sign up and say, Hi, I'm you know, your local Thai restaurant with Google. Google checks and then mails a postcard to the address that you are supposed to be located at with a number on it. And then you have to type that number into the web to verify that you're really at that address. So Google could or should have known Mm -hmm. that that um, ad was for a scam site, but they took the money uh, uh, anyway, either because they wanted the scam revenue, which I don't think is the case. I think it's more the case that if they devoted the energy that it would take to making sure that there were no scams, that the costs would outstrip the benefits to them. And so I end up paying the cost in the form of more expensive Thai food. Oh, that's crazy, Corey. Corey Dr. O is our guest today on Central Time. Still time to weigh in, 800-642-1234, as we discuss the ins and outs of Google search, along with that lawsuit that they are battling with the U.S. government. Uh, you and others have argued that Google's monopoly and size are directly connected to the quality of its search engines. And you've written that monopoly drives mediocrity. I'm curious about that phrase. Explain that. Well, well look, I think uh, any of us who are of a certain age can remember Lily Tomlin on Rowan McMahon's uh, laughing saying, uh, we're the phone company. We don't have to care in her fake AT&T ads. <laughs> yes. uh, 
you know, companies are disciplined by three things, right? They are disciplined by the fear that a competitor will take their business. They're disciplined by the fear that a regulator will find them. And especially in the digital world, they're disciplined by the fear that their customers might do something to claw back some value that they've taken away. So, you know, raise the price of a turkey leg at Disney World and all of a sudden you've got to pay security guards to pat people down for sandwiches that they bring in. In the case of Google, that um, uh, self-help looks more like ad blockers and jailbreaking and all the things that we do that make the web better for us, but worse for Google shareholders. Now, when a company reaches a certain scale, uh, it, it no longer really has to worry about your, you taking your business elsewhere, especially if they've got the excess capital to make sure that you never discover another potential search engine. If they're spending $19 billion a year to make sure that no Apple device owner ever accidentally tries a search engine and discovers they like it better. So th they're not really worried about you leaving. They're not really worried about regulators because when companies reach a certain scale, they can just tie their regulators in knots. You know, when IBM uh, finally got brought up on antitrust charges in 1970, they outspent the Department of Justice on lawyers every year for the next 12 consecutive years. They were spending more on lawyers than the U.S. government uh, on, on antitrust. Um, and so when companies reach a certain scale, they can just thumb their nose at, at regulation. Apple very famously um, you know, they kicked Facebook surveillance out of the uh, out of the iPhone. So if you use an iPhone, you tick one box and Facebook can't spy on you. But Apple simultaneously turned on secret spying of its users for the same purpose to target ads uh, and of the same data that that Facebook was gathering. Google has thumbed its nose at more regulations than I've had hot dinners. So it doesn't really have to worry about regulators either. And then finally, you know, because uh, when companies attain a certain scale, regulators can be captured and be brought to bear against people who do things that their shareholders don't like, they can stop you from taking any kind of self-help measures. So, you know, you, you can install an ad blocker on uh, your browser uh, for now, although the, the new version of Chrome is making it harder and harder to do ad and, and privacy blocking. But installing an ad blocker on a phone, uh, getting ad blockers, which is to say privacy blockers on your phone, involves reverse engineering the apps. And because reverse engineering an encrypted app is a violation of an old Clinton era law, the, the Section 1201 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the people who give you the tools to, to bypass those digital locks and ad block those apps, they can go to jail for five years and pay a $500,000 fine for a first offense. Now, Jay Freeman calls this felony contempt of business model, mm. right? That the criminalization of things that would otherwise be lawful and whose major defect is that they make life better for you and worse for the companies that you do business with. And so shorn of any discipline from competition, from regulation, or from uh, their customers themselves taking self-help measures, the company is free to shift value to itself. And one of the ways it can do that is just by lowering quality, just by being worse, because mm -hmm. being good is expensive. It means discipline. It means throwing away things that don't work in order to replace them with things that do. Um, it means constantly reevaluating yourself. It means never becoming complacent. You know, everyone agrees that the one thing that markets can do is whip companies into a froth of productivity. It's not just, you know, Milton Friedman who thought that. The, the first chapter of the Communist Manifesto is just Marx and Engels geeking out on how incredibly productive and creative capitalism can be when sufficiently driven by competition. And so it follows that when you take the competition away, that, that signal virtue dwindles. 
We have about 60 seconds left in our time together. Bottom line, what's going to happen with this case? What's the most likely outcome of the antitrust case in your view? Uh, it's 10 years of litigation, whatever happens, depending, I guess, on the next president. But the, the most important outcome is that it's going to discipline people in Google and outside of Google because no one is going to want to have all of their internal embarrassing memos entered into evidence into court. No one's going to want to have to spend millions of dollars on lawyers. No one's going to want to have every acquisition they're trying to make or key hire that they're trying to tempt in go south because they're mired in ugly litigation. You know, sometimes you got to execute an admiral to encourage the others and, and dragging Google uh, down a gravel road for the next 10 years tied to the bumper of the DOJ is going to make other corporate executives think twice before they pull the same shenanigans. Well, we'll certainly be watching to see what happens, even though it sounds like it's going to take a while. Corey, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Corey Doctorow is science fiction author. He's an activist and journalist who has covered the tech industry for many years. His latest book is The Internet Con, How to Seize the Means of Computation. He talked to us about the Google antitrust case. Coming up tomorrow on Central Time, as inflation rises, so does the cost of the things we love to do the most. Concerts, movies, festivals, and restaurant meals. Well, they all cost more than they used to. Is having fun too expensive these days? Join the discussion tomorrow afternoon. And as discussions on how to remove PFAS from rural and urban water heats up statewide, we'll hear about the latest research on the health implications involved and what's at risk. That's coming up tomorrow here on Central Time. Coming up after the news with Halloween right around the corner, we'll talk to a Wisconsin sociology professor who researches ghost hunters and how they derive meaning from investigating the paranormal. I'm Shereen Seward in for Rob Ferret. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. Central Time. I'm Shereen Seward, in for Rob Ferret, here with us on the Ideas Network. We are right in the thick of spooky season this time of year, but for some people, the fascination with ghosts and spirits isn't limited to Halloween. Paranormal investigators search for evidence of the supernatural year-round, and it's become a popular genre on television, with shows like Ghost Hunters, now on Travel Channel and Discovery+. Plus. On this episode of Ghost Hunters, there's something standing right there. The Rialto Theater here in Juliet, Illinois. They seem to see a little boy. Kevin? This is a boy who was hit by a vehicle in front of the property. Do you see anything moving around us? A crew member came up and was moving his stuff around. I had my skirt pulled walking down aisle five back there. Is your name Kevin? Kevin? We're looking for you. I just saw something walk. There's something big out there. This place is crazy. Whether you believe in ghosts or not, our search for evidence of the haunted reveals something about ourselves and about our culture. Our next guest embedded himself in the paranormal investigator community to learn more about what ghost hunters actually do and why they do it. We want to hear what you think at 800-642-1234. 
Do you watch any of the Ghost Hunter shows? What do you think of them? And why do you think people are so fascinated by the things we cannot see? And if you could talk to a ghost or spirit, would you want to? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Mark Eaton is an associate professor of sociology and the chair of the sociology and anthropology department at Ripon College. He's the author of the book Sensing Spirits, Paranormal Investigation, and the Social Construction of Ghosts. Mark, welcome to Central Time. Thank you for having me. When we talk about paranormal investigators or ghost hunters, what specifically does that entail? How would you describe what they do? Uh, I would describe, I mean, the, the general principle is that they are searching for evidence of the existence of spirits and or an effort to communicate with those spirits. So that's typically done through technologies of various sorts, like the ones that are often featured on those shows that you just mentioned, ghost, ghost hunters and things of that nature. Um, or for people who believe that they have the ability to contact spirits through extrasensory means, um, oftentimes it's as simple as just sitting in a dark room and trying to open up for communication. So there's a variety of different ways that people do it, but those are the two main styles, I guess I would say. Well, you're a sociology professor. So how did you get involved in researching ghost hunters? Um, actually through those shows. Um, as a graduate student, I needed a diversion from what I was doing at the time. And uh, watching ghost hunting shows was pretty exciting. So I initially watched them for entertainment, but then of course, started to think about them from a sociological perspective and thought it was fascinating to wonder why people uh, search for evidence of ghosts, how they went about doing that, how they made sense of what they experienced during those investigations in, in terms of knocks on the, the, the floor or a feeling of their hair being tugged or things of that nature. Um, and then ultimately, um, kind of the bigger questions that we have in terms of uh, what happens after we die and is there a possibility of some form of life beyond physical death and for all of those reasons i found it just increasingly fascinated and decided to go ahead and study it by actually just investigating with the investigators what are some of the common characteristics or themes that you saw with the investigators you spent time with i guess did you get a sense of the motivation behind their work i would imagine it varies from person to person yeah, it does vary from per person to person, but there are trends as well. Um, most commonly, the people who I investigated with and interviewed um, had had some kind of experience, oftentimes in their childhood, where they believed that they had been in the presence of a spirit. Um, those, Not all of those people identified as sensitives, um, but were simply uh, people who were certain that they had had an experience in their childhood or perhaps in their you know, young adulthood or even later in life that they couldn't explain through ordinary means. And so that unanswered question was a motivation for a lot of people. Uh, for other people, it wasn't necessarily that they had personally had an experience, but they had been raised in a family where um, believing in ghosts or telling stories about ghosts or telling stories about places in their community that were allegedly haunted was part of their upbringing. And it became a fascination that they wanted to investigate. Um, in some cases, people got motivated by the loss of a loved one and they found themselves trying to find some sort of proof that that person wasn't completely gone or that they could communicate with them um so those are kind of i guess the the sort of beginning motivations as people got 
involved, their motivations changed as to why they actually continued. But in terms of why they got involved in the first place, that kind of is the majority of the cases. We're talking with Ripon College sociology professor Mark Eaton about his research into paranormal investigators and why they investigate ghosts. Do you have an interest in the paranormal? There's time for your story, too. Join in at 800-642-1234. What are some of the methods that ghost hunters use to investigate the paranormal? What stands out to you about their methods and how they conduct these investigations? Um, yeah, and that's an interesting question because I think it has been informed to a large degree by the TV shows. Um, the, the most dominant way people go about investigating, at least the people that I interviewed and investigated with, which seemed to be representative of the subculture as a whole, uh, was sort of techno technology heavy and a kind of science oriented approach to investigating. So um, sometimes thousands, thousands of dollars worth of equipment being brought into these locations that are alleged to have had spirit activity, um, things from, you know, electromagn electromagnetic frequency readers to uh, cameras with night vision, um, motion detectors, vibration detectors, uh, barometric pressure sensors, you name it. Um, so that that tends to be the, the most dominant way of investigating. And with that comes also a sort of mindset of skepticism or a desire to make an effort to debunk as many claims as possible, um, which is oftentimes sort of surprising to people who don't know a lot about the subculture that there's an em emphasis on disproving many uh, reports of ghostly activity through finding natural explanations for it. Um, things like black mold or high electromagnetic frequency coming off of various electro electronics in a home. Um, and attempting to essentially separate the wheat from the chaff until you're left with things that you can't explain through natural uh, means. So that's the primary kind of dominant way of investigating. But there is a secondary trend within the subculture, which is people who uh, believe that they have various ways of, of engaging with spirits through extrasensory means, whether it's um, hearing them or seeing them or feeling their presence or sensing their emotions or in some cases feeling as though the spirits can actually sort of occupy their bodies for a period of time. And in those cases, people aren't so much going in looking for evidence of ghosts because they feel as though they already know that kind of intrinsically through their bodies and through their minds, but rather they're looking to establish a connection with those spirits, trying to see what they want, see if they can help them cross over. So um, their methods differ quite a bit from the people who are technology heavy and they tend to not come in with the skeptic mindset so much. I'm curious about the TV shows that you mentioned. How accurate is what we see on TV? When we're watching Ghost Hunters or, or other programs, we see these practices that, um, that the investigator practices. How does that compare to real-life investigations who do it without cameras recording everything for broadcast, things that you've seen yourself? Yeah, it's it's there's an interesting sort of relationship between the TV shows and the actual investigation teams because many of the people that I interviewed and investigated with were inspired by the TV shows initially to get involved in this practice, maybe to create their own team or to Google and find out that there was a team in their area that they could join. So the TV shows are similar to the forms of investigation that I participated in and observed 
in part, I think, because the TV shows were the inspiration for kind of how to how to investigate correctly um, to some degree. So um, the technologies and the efforts to find rational explanations and some of the sensory or rather sensitive practices, those are similar in some ways to what you see on TV. One thing I would say is a big taboo within the subculture that's represented a lot by shows like Ghost Adventures, for example, is the provoking strategy, the, the effort to um, attempt to get spirits to harm someone or attempt to anger spirits to get them to act out in ways that, um, you know, you can capture on audio or video or capture on your own body through scratches or getting pushed down or whatever. Um, some people in, in paranormal investigation teams do that thing or do those things, but um, by and large, what I found is that that effort is seen as disrespectful to spirits. Uh, many people I talked to said, you know, if this was your grandma who was haunting this home, you wouldn't want somebody coming in and yelling those things at her. So why would we go in and do that? So um, the provoking and the kind of outlandish behavior and the thrill seeking behavior that happens on some of the TV shows is really more taboo within the subculture. But the technologies and the kind of mediumistic efforts to communicate with spirits are present in the subculture. So interesting, Mark. We're talking to Ripon College sociology professor Mark Eaton about his research into paranormal investigations and why we seek evidence of the supernatural. You can join in at 800-642-1234. If you could talk to the dead, would you? And who would you want to talk to? What questions would you have? And what questions do you have about this, about paranormal investigators and the fascination with ghosts and spirits? Call us, 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234, or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll continue this conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Shereen Seward, in for Rob Ferrett. Right now, we're picking up the conversation with Mark Eaton. He is a sociology professor at Ripon College, and he's with us today to share his research into the world of paranormal investigators and why people are on the hunt for the evidence of ghosts and spirits. We'd like to hear from you, too, at 800-642-1234. What do you think of ghost hunters and the shows about them? What questions do you have for our guest about why and how people investigate the paranormal? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Mark, I'd imagine that you're often asked whether you believe in ghosts. It's got to be a common question for you. But I'd say the concept is a little more complicated than that. And, and your book title has an interesting phrase, social construction of ghosts. Can you explain what that means exactly? Yeah, um, so my kind of angle on the topic is that I'm neither attempting to prove the existence of ghosts or um, definitively debunk the existence of ghosts or in any way attempt to deride or demean people who do believe in ghosts. Um, as a sociologist, I'm kind of trying to stand on the margins, I guess you could say, of, of paranormal investigation and examine it uh, you know, as objectively as you can, I guess, as a human and as a participant in it, um, a participant observer in it, I should say, as a researcher. So, you know, the, the idea of social construction is that uh, things may not have an objective reality to them, or they might have an objective reality to them, but it's how we as individuals and we as groups engage with the idea of something that can make it real and its consequences for people. So 
the idea of social construction of ghosts, I guess, is multifaceted, but one aspect of it is that um, the ghosts that are believed to inhabit certain spaces are kind of made real, regardless of whether you believe that they objectively are present in the sites or you completely, you know, don't believe in the notion of spirits at all. Um, people who do go in and investigate for ghosts kind of engage in processes that make those spirits real, at least in the moment, through um, asking for proof of their existence by calling out by name people who they, they believe are haunting these sites um, and attempting to engage with them essentially as people without bodies, as some of the people that I interviewed uh, referred to them as. Um, and so ghosts are real in a social constructionist sense, whether or not they're objectively real in some sort of you know, larger sense. Um, and then the social construction of ghosts also gets back to some of the kind of cultural ways that we engage with ghosts, like especially around this time of year, ghost stories, TV shows, the paranormal investigation shows that you've mentioned already in the, in the show. Um, all of those kind of maintain our fascination with the idea of ghosts and to some degree add some credibility to the possibility at least that ghosts exist. And so the concept of ghosts is, I guess, what I'm engaging with in my research is, is how, do, how do we believe in ghosts and how do we put those beliefs into action, both as individuals and in these paranormal investigation teams? We have a caller. Mark is with us from Bloomer. Mark, hi. Thanks for calling. Okay. I was a total skeptic. I'm not one who is on the fringe at all. I'm a pretty level-headed guy. My wife and I are sitting in the living room, and the only light in the house that was on was a lamp across the way. We were watching TV. Snap. You hear the lamp turn off. But a, three seconds later, snap. You heard, see the lamp turn back on. Power didn't go out because the lights in the, or the TV stayed on. I can't explain it. We hear footsteps up in, our, in the room next door to us. It's her and me and our baby at the time, and he didn't walk. We were in bed. I don't get it. Is it. Is this, like, normal? Does this stuff, like, happen and people just don't recognize it or what? I don't know. What do you, Mark, what do you have about what Mark said um, about, about this? I mean, somebody who's a skeptic, and then, and then they hear all this stuff. How do you explain all of that? Yeah, and that certainly resonates with a lot of the people I spoke to who got involved in paranormal, paranormal investigation was that they are, they were skeptics. Some of them were born and raised as believers, but a lot of people weren't until they had some experience that, that they couldn't explain sort of like the caller Mark um, mentioned, you know, sitting in their house and they hear footsteps or doors opening and shutting or lights going on, on and off, or even things more dramatic than that, waking up to see some, you know, red eyed entity sleeping next to them or something. Um, I heard some pretty wild stories in my interviews. And so, you know, I don't, I mean, the short answer is I don't have an explanation for those things. I also, um, I respect the people who claim to have had those experiences because in most cases, there's no effort to monetize that or to, to make a name for yourself on the basis of that. Because, you know, the reality is that although statistically a majority of Americans on various surveys report that they do believe spirits can haunt homes or that you can communicate with the dead. It's still very much a stigmatized belief in our society, right? People who 
adults at least who say that they believe in ghosts oftentimes are sort of laughed at or they're considered gullible or people try to tell them why they're wrong. So, you know, it's not until you have someone come along and, and say, you know, I don't think you're crazy that someone will open up about the types of experiences like the caller had. So, you know, as I said, the short answer for that particular event is I don't know what caused that. I can't say definitively, but it certainly resonates with a lot of the reasons why people got involved in paranormal investigation in the first place. We have time for another call. I'd like to take Kathy in Hale's Corners. Uh, Kathy, thanks for calling in. Well, thank you. What kind of, what... Um, I have, yes, I, my comment is I absolutely would love to talk to a ghost. I think that would be a wonderful experience. I would not be fearful at all. And the reason I think that most people are interested in ghosts is because we're all searching for the answer to what happens after we die. Mm -hmm. And if we can talk to a ghost and it's a verifiable thing, we would know. Sure. It, Kathy, thanks for that. And Mark, is that kind of what you hear from people? I mean, you talk about, you make the case that this is a deeper and more meaningful process than, you know, than perhaps even what you see on TV. And what do you think about that? Yeah, I would agree with you. I think that it is a more meaningful process for a lot of people. Um, you know, the TV shows tend to understandably make it look like a sort of thrill show. Um, but for the people that do it, a lot of them get a kind of deep spiritual meaning from it. So there's a variety of, of kind of religiosities among paranormal investigators, but most of them are in some way, shape or form uh, religious. Some are deeply religious. Some were raised in a tradition and kind of drifted away from it. Um, and for some, actually, the investigation itself brings them back to some sort of spirituality that they were largely uh, distant from by the time they started investigating. And kind of getting to the caller's point, you know, um, several of the people that I interview, interviewed and investigated with said something along the lines of, you know, when I went to church, I had to have faith, but when I do this, I get to have proof. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really powerful, you know, that people are searching for that answer to the question. And sometimes some people are satisfied with, with answers that are rooted in faith, but a lot of people are looking for something that they feel is more tangible than that. And paranormal investigation provides people one avenue by which they feel like they can might, they might be able to make direct contact with something that proves to them that there's some form of consciousness, there's some form of personality, um, a person basically that exists beyond physical death. And if that exists for the person who's haunting this property, then it could possibly exist for you or for your loved ones, right? So there's a lot to be said for the spiritual significance of paranormal investigation, um, certainly. We have about a minute left in our time together, and I wanted to touch on something that you write about in your book. You say that paranormal investigation is really marginalized by the mainstream scientific and religious communities. What effect does that have on the people participating in ghost hunting? Is it daunting for them? I think it is. I think it's a challenge that in some ways they also embrace. Um, you know, many people that I spoke to uh, perceive paranormal investigation as a kind of pioneering scientific effort, right? That maybe right now it's marginalized and maybe right now they haven't found the kind of smoking gun, irrefutable proof of the existence of ghosts. 
but they're confident that with the latest technologies and what might be coming down the road in five, 10, 15 years, that they might be able to finally be the, be the people who definitively prove that there's some form of life or some form of consciousness that exists beyond death. Sure. And um, to the extent that that, that happens, um, they continue to be motivated by that desire to advance science rather than simply be rejected by it. Mark, I want to thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you as well. Mark Eaton is an associate professor of sociology and the chair of the sociology and anthropology department at Ripon College with us today discussing paranormal investigations and his book, Sensing Spirits, Paranormal Investigation and the Social Construction of Ghosts. I'm Shereen Seward and for Rob Ferret, you're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. 